Good morning, everybody. Sorry, the uh, projector keeps overheating. So, if you didn't know the words, you're you're out of luck there. Um, let me pray for us. We'll get started. God, thank you for today. Thank you for. Um, this being Mother's Day and uh, the gift of our mothers, and we want to celebrate them today. We want to thank you for them today. Thank you for the way that um, you love us through our parents. Thank you for the way you love us through the Word and through your Spirit. Thank you for the way you love us through everything that you've created. Thank you that you are our refuge, you are our comfort, you are our life. And so we come together to worship and we come together to, to read and study your word. We come together to pray. And we acknowledge that you alone are the giver of life. and You are our sufficiency. God, we want to uh, pray for believers around the world who are facing persecution on a daily basis. We pray for um, those families of those killed in Sri Lanka. We pray for um, families of victims of school shootings. We pray for um, those that are in places in the world where it is illegal to meet like this in the name of Jesus. God, whether people are facing um, illness or facing disease or are facing threat, thank you, God, that you are our refuge today. And so we we want to intercede on behalf of those that um, have no words with which to pray. We want to take the hand of Jesus and to take the proverbial hand of those in need and connect them, knowing that you, Jesus, are the healer, you are the giver, you are the shepherd, you are the king, you are the source of our hope and the source of our joy and the reason for our even existence. So we pray, we worship, we um, invite you to look at our hearts today and you to transform our minds in alignment with what is good and true. God, give us a perspective of you that is not based upon our assumptions or what we would want in a God if it was up to us, but align our hearts and minds with what is reality. Thank you, God. I pray all of that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, welcome. Never quite sure who's going to be at Campus House on this particular week. 
Um, we're kind of in between everything with uh, those that are graduating. And so if you are visiting today, if you are parents or grandparents, we want to welcome you. Moms, kudos to you. Uh, good work. Um, in just uh, in this week, I think we start the first the first round of summer school, and so if you are here for the summer, welcome. If you are leaving us, goodbye. <laughs> um, so we are gathered here today to worship and to pray and to study the Word, but where we're going to be for these next several weeks is in the Psalms. And so whether you are sticking around for the summer or whether you are going to be in Timbuktu, we really invite you to stay connected to, to the study together as we go through the Psalms this, this summer. Um, our sermon series is called Backstory, and we'll have the podcast each week online that you can connect with. Um, in, in just a second, I'll tell you about just the rhythm of the week, even, of how we're going to be in, in these Psalms together. Let me give you just a little backstory on psalms. Psalms originally were called the um, praise songs. There were multiple authors of the psalms. There was David, the recognizable one, but also Asaph and descendants of Korah. And Solomon wrote a couple. And even Moses wrote a psalm that we will look at later in the summer. There was a guy named Ethan that wrote a psalm. Don't know who Ethan was, except he was an Ezraite. Ezraite. Um, during the time of Moses to the Babylonian captivity, Psalms were written over a span of a thousand years. They were the soundtrack for the people of God. They were the music used in worship. These were the worship songs. And they're their projector did not overheat because they did not have one. They just knew these psalms inside and out, and they used them uh, to worship. The psalms are organized into five different books, and each book ends with a doxology, a word of praise. Psalms reflect the writer's emotions and reactions to situations that they found themselves in. And so we find psalms of praise, which are adoration and affirmation and admiration of God. We find psalms of thanksgiving, which were psalms of gratitude for, pro, for, for provision or for rescue. We find pilgrim psalms, um, songs, songs of ascent or journey that the people of God would sing on the way to Jerusalem, on the way to the temple for the feast. There are wisdom psalms. There are royal or kingly psalms. There are psalms of law or justice. There's also psalms of lament. Roughly a third, between a third and a half of the psalms are psalms of lament, psalms of uh, crying out to God in the midst of hard circumstances. Bono uh, has spoken a lot about the Psalms, or as he calls them, the Psalms. And he said this. He said, My religion could not be fiction, but it had to transcend facts. 
It could be mystical, but not mythical. He says the words of the Psalms were as poetic as they were religious. Before David could fulfill the prophecy and become the king of Israel, he had to take quite a beating. He was forced into exile and ended up in a cave in some no-name border town facing the collapse of his ego and abandonment by God. But this is where the soap opera got interesting. This is where David was said to have composed his first psalm, a blues. That's what a lot of psalms feel like to me, he said, the blues. Man shouting at God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? Psalms of crying out to God in the midst of hard circumstances. So there are psalms of praise, but there's also psalms of the blues. There are psalms of questions as well as psalms of confidence. So throughout the summer, we're going to look at the full expanse, not every psalm, but every theme of the psalms. The thread is worship, praising God for who he is and for what he's done, for his faithfulness, for his majesty, for the centrality of his word. These psalms are poetic and they're musical. They are gut-level responses to how close or how distant one feels to God. The psalms are calls to repentance. They're, they're calls to obedience. They're calls to trust and just sheer love. The big idea for the summer is that we want to look at a series of psalms but also look at the historical narrative behind them, the context of them. And so that's why we're calling it Backstory. So let me give you just a, a really quick rundown of this is what it will look like throughout the summer. We want to reflect on a psalm, but also on the story behind that psalm each week. So on Sundays, someone will stand up here and, and preach through the psalm and invite you to participate with that. And then on Thursday nights at what we call a line, we're moving it to 7 o'clock a little bit earlier this summer. That's our, our midweek gathering. And at that time, we'll have a time of, of worship and reflection and contemplation and discussion as a community off of the psalm that we talk about on Sunday. Um, and so each a line and uh, we will go a little bit deeper, but go deeper together. And so it'll be a time of, of small group kind of interaction, also a time of worship. And uh, this particular Thursday coming up, we'll have a meal attached to that as well. And so if you're around this summer, that's where we'll be. Um, regardless if you're around or not, we want to have some, some reflection coming into Sundays as well as some reflections off of Sundays. And so each Friday morning on our app, if you haven't downloaded our app yet, that would be helpful. Um, each, sun, each Friday morning on our app, we'll have some questions that will lead us into. This is where we're going on Sunday, so you can read it ahead of time. And then a couple of questions coming off of that, you know, that will be what, what threads and themes did you find in that psalm? Um, on, your, on your chair, hopefully we made enough. If not, come grab one of these up here. On your chair, there's a handout and a pen. 
And one side is just for you to take with you. It is uh, how to read through the Psalms and some things to look for, some things to reflect on. And we'll hit some of that today, but that is really kind of for you to take uh, to go. The, the opposite page, the back side of the page, is Psalm 16. And that's really where we want to go today. We want to um, read and reflect on the psalm and then um, share a little bit about, about the backstory of the psalm. And then ask these questions. What do you see of God's love and of his character and movement in this psalm? How does this point to Jesus? And as I hold this psalm as a mirror to my own heart and to my own mind, what do I see? What do I do with this? Okay. So, that's where we're going. Everybody good? Good? Okay, good. Somebody be willing to pray for us this morning just before we look at this psalm, just really inviting the Holy Spirit to lead us through it. Any, anybody be willing to pray for us? Anyone at all? Thanks, Mal. Amen. If you are able, would you stand and let's read this all together. Psalm 16. Let's read it together out loud. Protect me, God, for I take refuge in you. I said to Yahweh, you are my Lord. I have nothing good besides you. As for the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones. All my delight is in them. The sorrows of those who take another God for themselves will multiply. I will not pour out their drink offerings of blood, and I will not speak their names with my lips. Lord, you are my portion and the cup of blessing. You hold my future. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my conscience instructs me. I keep the Lord in mind always because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my spirit rejoices my body also rests securely, for you will not abandon me to Sheol. You will not allow your faithful one to see decay. You reveal the path of life to me. In your presence is abundant joy. In your right hand are eternal pleasures. Mm, you have a seat. Now I would just invite you to read back through that psalm and 
we've given you some space on the right side of the page and hopefully a pen on your, on your chair or underneath your chair. Would you just take a f- just three or four minutes to reflect on the psalm? What words or phrases stick out to you? You can underline or circle. What threads or themes do you see? How is this particular psalm speaking to your heart and mind today? I wanted us just to get a a taste of that because often we come to a sermon on a Sunday and we come in and we we sit and we kind of do the deal and we sing the songs and then we we go out and what's it mean for us? What's it mean for me to to move from Sunday morning to, to Monday morning? What's it mean for the word to shape us in a way that affects every part of our lives? And that starts with us spending some time in the Word, not, not simply to 
get information, but just to sit with the Lord. Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, was an incredible um, theologian and actually was martyred for, for his faith by the Nazis at the end of World War II. And he said, while the rest of the Bible is God's word to us, the Psalms are words given by God to be said back to him. They were not written as information, but as prayers. And so to pray the Psalms and to read the Psalms and to study the Psalms, but then to let the Psalms really shape us. That is the goal for this summer. Um, so did you recognize any, any themes or threads as you read through the psalm on your own? Are there any, any particular words or phrases that stuck out to you? Isn't it awesome that, that we can just sit with Scripture and, and Scripture just reads us? <laughs> In that God is a God who reveals. He's a God who wants to be found. He is not hidden. He is, he is present in words of Scripture, in, in this room, in you. He's also present uh, in us together. And so, um, so we learn from each other. You don't, you don't need a, a pastor or definitely not an expert in front of you. I am, I'm a curator of the space because you are the body of Christ. You are the church. And so he has revealed himself through his word, but he reveals himself to each other. And so it's so good to be together, to, to read this word together. So really, I just want to spend the time, rest of the time kind of building off of what you have said, if that's cool. Um, and then how does this really invite me, how does this invite you to think about God differently and to actually live differently? And how does this point to Jesus? So that's where we're going with the rest of our time, okay? Really briefly, just to move through the passage. Verse 1, protect me, God, for I take refuge in you. So it starts with a, with a petition, with a, a big ask. God, would you protect me? Uh, we, the word also means to keep or to preserve or to guard from harm. And so this is where the backstory comes in. What was the harm that David was praying to be protected from? And so this particular psalm doesn't have a particular backstory. This is kind of... Um, I read a lot of commentaries, and so scholars say it's probably this, this time in David's life that is found in 1 Samuel 23 and 24. He's on the run from Saul. And uh, when he's on the run from Saul, he goes to various places around uh, Judea and around the Dead Sea. And in chapter 23, he actually goes to Calah, and um, he... He guards the people of Calah from the Philistines. And they return the favor by turning him into Saul. <laughs> so Saul was the king of Israel. He was severely just jealous of David. David had defeated Goliath. And so everybody was singing 
pop songs about David. No one was singing about Saul anymore. And so it was kind of like, you know, Prince Harry. And so now Prince William gets the back seat. And so Saul um, just hated that. So he's on, David is constantly on the run from Saul. And so, you know, people of Kayla turn him in. And so he goes to the Ziphites and they turn him in. And, and so he is constantly just um, <laughs> dodging this, the literal spear of Saul. Um, but also he and his men are on the run from him. And this is just one small passage in chapter 23 of 1 Samuel, verse 26. Saul went along one side of the mountain, and David and his men went along the other side. <laughs> and even though David was hurrying to get away from Saul, Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them. And then a messenger came to Saul saying, Come quickly, because the Philistines have raided the land. So Saul broke off the pursuit of David and went to engage the Philistines. And therefore, that place was named the Rock of Separation. An angel actually came and said, Hey, Saul, the Philistines are invading the land. And so he called off the search for David, even though he was within a stone's throw of capturing him. So what David discovers is that his refuge for years and years and years. He was the promised king, and yet here he is on the run. And his refuge was not with the people of Kela. His refuge was not with the Ziphites. His refuge was not in, with the Philistines in Gath. His refuge was constantly with God. God was his fortress. God was his refuge. God was his rescue. So in verse 2, he says, I said to Yahweh, you are my Lord. I have nothing good besides you. He's making a confession of faith. You are my Lord. I have nothing good except you. In, the, in uh, James' letter, he writes, every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights. Jesus says in John 15, he says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. There is no good apart from God. David is saying, God, you are my treasure. It's similar to Psalm 73 where Asaph declares, Whom am, have I in heaven except you, God? There's nothing on earth I desire besides you. Verse 3, as for the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones. All my delight is in them. Part of the backstory is that David is on the run with a bunch of misfit toys. <laughs> He's on the run from a bunch of men who had their heart set on God and had loyalty and devotion to David. And were willing to put their life on the line every single day to be with their leader and to be for their God. David said, those are my people. He said, those are the ones that I delight in. I delight most of all in you, God, but I delight in your people. Because they constantly, they constantly point me to what is true about you. Where do we put our confidence? Where do we put our treasure? Who in your life continues to point you to the satisfaction that is only found in Christ? So that's the first chunk of the scripture. I think it's talk, talking about confidence. And our confidence is in the Lord. And then in verses 4 through 6, he switches a bit. And he talks about contentment. 
The sorrows of those who take another God for themselves will multiply. I will, I will not pour out their drink offerings of blood. I will not speak their names with my lips. David, in contrast to Saul, is, is, is such a stark contrast. David is a man after God's heart, and Saul had started that way, but then he took his eyes off of God and onto everything else, and that did, that did not go well for him. And so idolatry was constantly tugging at Saul's heart. And it was more subtle forms of idolatry. Later, in, as you read through the kings, uh, there was some blatant idolatry going on in Israel and Judea. But Saul had this subtle idolatry. Um, we know that there were idols in the king's palace because in, I think, 1 Samuel 23-ish, Maybe it's earlier than that, 17 maybe. Somewhere in the Bible it says, um, David is on the run from Saul, and, and Saul's daughter, Michael, uh, was David's wife. And, and David was trying to get away from Saul. And so, so Michael put an idol in bed, in her bed, and put, um, made it look like it was David. So that the soldiers would be confused. Next day they pulled back the sheets and there was an idol. Why was there an idol in the king's palace? Uh, at one point Saul, instead of going to the Lord, he went to a witch of Endor to seek some advice. So the idolatry that was literal, the idolatry that was superstition. And then Samuel said... Of Saul, he said, You have an idol of stubbornness. That you, your, your, your stubborn streak actually has become an idol separating you from God. In contrast to that, David says this Lord, you are my portion, in verse 5, in my cup of blessing. You hold my future. The boundary lines have fallen from me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have. A beautiful inheritance. This points back to God apportioning the land of Canaan as the people of Israel came from Egypt through the desert to the promised land. And, and they were apportioned lots of land. Um, the boundaries or borderlines determine the inheritance of each one. What is cool? You know, you had the 12 tribes of, of Israel. There was one tribe that got no land. And they were the Levites. They were the priests. And the whole point of that, they, I mean, God, God still provided for them. There were allotments made as people brought their sacrifices to the Lord. There were, um, there were allotments made to the priests so that they could eat and they could, you know, have a place to live. But they got no land. Because God said, I will be your allotment. I will be your inheritance. Numbers 18, you will have no inheritance, neither will you have any portion among them, because I am your portion. And David is uh, really stealing that idea, <laughs> even though he wasn't a Levite. He said, that's my heart. God, that you would be my portion. You would be my cup. You would be my future. 
the, you would be my boundary line. And he says all of those things have fallen in, in very pleasant places. John Piper wrote one time, God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. This is radical contentment in God. We don't run to other gods and we don't run to other idols that nothing satisfies us except the Lord. C.S. Lewis put it this way, he who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God only. He who has God and everything else has no more than the one who has God only. David says, I will be satisfied in you. Verse 7 through 9 moves from contentment to comfort. David says, I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my conscience instructs me. I keep the Lord in mind always because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my spirit rejoices. My body also rests securely. Several years ago, the, the author and the counselor, uh, Larry Crabb, lost his brother in a tragic airplane crash. In, in one particular candid moment, he was wrestling with God, trying to make sense of it, and he said this. He cried out to God. He says, I, I know you are all I have, but I don't know you well enough for you to be all that I need. I know that you are all I have, but I don't know you well enough. I don't trust you enough for you to be all that I need. And that is a, a cry of desperation. That's a cry of honesty. But that is a cry asking for God to be the God of comfort, to be enough. Again, this is from John Piper. Refuge is not automatic. It is interactive. If we are in danger or harm or in folly, God counsels us how to escape. He speaks by his revealed word. Your testimonies are my counselors, Psalm 119 says. He becomes our refuge by counseling us how to walk in the way of life and not death. And that's in real time. This isn't information to go figure out so that you can conquer the next thing. This is an invitation to relationship where our trust in him is built by being with him. I keep the Lord in mind always. He had cried out in verse 1, protect me, O God. And then he writes about how God had actually been with and for him. He says, I take refuge in you. You are my Lord. I have nothing good besides you. You are my portion and blessing. You hold my future. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. I will keep the Lord in mind always because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. There's a move from, from this cry of desperation to a statement of confidence because God has been his comfort. God has been his protection he says, I will not be shaken. I will not be moved. I keep the Lord in mind always. Always before me, one translation says. Later in the summer, we'll, we'll go through Psalm 51, which is a psalm written after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. And this was his psalm of repentance. And in that psalm, he says, my sin is always before me. I am, I am well aware 
of my sin always before me. There are other times in other Psalms where my, my situation is always before me. But here he says, Lord, you are always before me. And when the Lord is always before us, when he takes up our whole peripheral, when he fills the wholeness of our heart and mind and soul, then everything else grows strangely dim. The Lord is always before me. And finally, the last two verses talk about confidence again. So I called it confidence reprise. For you will not abandon me to Sheol. You will not allow your faithful one to see decay. The joy of verse 9, which said, Therefore my heart is glad and my spirit rejoices, is based on the confidence of verse 8, I will not be shaken, but it's also based on the confidence of verse 10, which says, Death has no hold. You will not abandon me to Sheol. He knows that God will never abandon him. He will not neglect him, that he will be with God forever. And that gives him the confidence to say this in verse 11. You reveal the path of life to me. In your presence is abundant joy. In your right hand are eternal pleasures. Sam Storm wrote, This was not an infrequent or occasional choice or one to which he reverted only in times of crisis. This was an orientation of life to which he was always committed. This was David's confidence. Where's our confidence? Where's our confidence? His was rooted in relationship to God. His was rooted in what he had seen God do time after time after time. Any sort of self-confidence gave way to this God confidence. Since the crunch of fruit in the garden, there's always been a pull of humanity towards self-confidence. Billions of dollars each year are spent on self-help books. It's always been that case. Isaiah 47 says this, you felt secure in your wickedness and said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge, they have deluded you for you have said in your heart, I am and there is no one besides me. Jeremiah 2, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that can't hold water. See what that's saying? My, my people have committed two sins. First of all, they, they turned their back on me, but then in their self-sufficiency, they dug their own wells that are absolutely broken. 1 John 3, dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God. If our hearts don't condemn us, Jesus will take you as you are, but he won't leave you there. Through Christ, we have become the righteousness of God. And so we practice righteousness. We confess sin. We look to our advocate, Jesus. We know that he is not reluctant to save. We know that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And if our hearts don't condemn us, then we have confidence before God, which is really cool. Because if it's all about us having enough self-confidence, we know better. But if our confidence is rooted in the reality of God, in the reality of the cross, in the love of the fact that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, 
then it grows and grows and grows. John 15, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. 1 John 5 then says, this is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we ask for him. Moving from fear to confidence is to pray in accordance with his will, which can only come within the context of relationship. And David knew that so well. David makes some bold prayers. <laughs> he asked for big things. He had such confidence in God because that confidence was rooted in relationship. John 15, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask anything you want, it will be granted. If we abide, then our prayers become in alignment with God's will. Hebrews 4, did I put that up there? Hebrews 4.16, let's draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And then David says all of this is pointing toward future reality, which the, a theme that gets picked up on in the New Testament post-resurrection. 1 John 5, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you may know with confidence that you have eternal life. 1 John 2, now dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, he, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. And finally, going back to verses 10 and 11 of Psalm 16. You will not abandon me to Sheol. You will not allow your faithful one to see decay. You reveal the path of life to me. In your presence is abundant joy. In your right hand are eternal pleasures. This is cool. Acts chapter 2, day of Pentecost. Jesus has ascended to the Father after the resurrection. And he said, before I go, I want you to know this, that I'm sending the Holy Spirit. I'm sending the Comforter. I'm sending the Counselor. And he is not going to just come and be with you. He actually will take up residence in you. So the Holy Spirit came in power as the disciples were gathered in this upper room. And immediately they went out into the streets. And the streets were filled with people that were there for the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Pentecost. So there were people gathered from every known nation on earth who had a heart for God. And Peter goes into the street and he starts preaching. And the sermon ends with the people being cut to the heart and saying, what do we do? And he says, repent and be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit for the forgiveness of sin. For the, You will receive the gift of the Spirit. He he calls them to repentance and he calls them to baptism. But in the sermon, which is quite long, he quotes Psalm 16. He quotes verses 10 and 11. 
You will not abandon me to Sheol. You will not allow your faithful one to see decay. So there's a backstory to Psalm 16 that is, is David on the run and David knowing that only God is his refuge and God is his rescue. But he's also pointing ahead to Jesus. You're a holy one. Your faithful one will not see decay. Death will not hold him down. Before his body could decay, his body came walking out of a tomb. Peter stands up on Pentecost and says that the one that you just crucified didn't stay dead. And therefore, we have confidence. Our confidence isn't based on us getting it right. Our confidence isn't based on an empty religion. Our confidence is based on an empty tomb. And because of that, he reveals the path of life to us. In his presence is abundant joy. At his right hand are eternal pleasures. Because of the cross and because of an empty tomb. And so let me pray and we're going to celebrate that together by taking communion this morning. And we invite you, if you're a Jesus follower, to take this bread to take this cup, to remember and to rehearse, but it is, a, it is a cup of confidence. We raise this cup of confidence, Psalm 16 says, knowing that uh, his life is now our life. Oh, to grace, how great death.